The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome to the Flowered Path. After the news, I'll be talking with Father Edward Foley, who is the vice postulator for the canonization cause of Blessed Solanus Casey. We talk about the wonderful life of Blessed Solanus Casey, and Father Ed also gives details about the process of canonization. I've had several people ask me to go over the canonization process on the show. Father Ed has the experience to detail this far better than I could so he was a great person to talk to about this. Before we get going, I want to thank my new patrons, Morgan Powers, Eric Todd, and Brother Richard. Patrons and donations help me continue to make the Flowered Path and bring you more content. All patrons get the regular episodes of the Flowered Path ad-free, often before they drop on the regular podcast feed. Rose and Orchid Tier patrons also get shout-outs on the show. Orchid tier patrons get monthly merch mailings as well. This month they got sturdy paracord rosaries I made myself. To check out all of the patron options and benefits, and to help me continue to make The Flowered Path, go to patreon.com slash thefloweredpath. You can also find a PayPal link if you want to make a one-time donation. Just click the support button at thefloweredpath.com and look for the PayPal button that says Donate. Our first story isn't really news, but I read a wonderful article about ladybugs on churchpop.com, which I pointed the Flowered Path news writers to. Ever wonder why those shiny red and black beetles are called ladybugs? A traditional tale may shed some light on the subject. In the Middle Ages, European crop fields were plagued with aphids. The pests were destroying entire fields, leaving the population at risk for starvation. The local farmers having a strong faith in the Blessed Mother, prayed to Mary for intercession on their behalf. Soon, a great cloud appeared on the horizon, swirling with insects. At first, it seemed grim. Another attack to the crop would likely be the end. This cloud, however, 
was full of thousands of beetles that immediately set upon the aphids and saved the remaining crops. The farmers believed this was the answer to their prayers and dubbed the beetles Our Lady's Bugs. They were known as Marienkäfer in German, which translates to Mary's Beetle. The red-orange wings of the beetles are said to represent Our Lady's Mantle and the black spots her joys and sorrows. To this day, these gentle social insects are celebrated by farmers as crop protectors. Shreveport, Louisiana, 1873. A severe outbreak of yellow fever has plagued the city. Thousands would lose their lives to the disease, and many more fled the area to avoid it. In the midst of this trouble were five priests, Father Isidore Quimerius, Father Jean-Pierre, Father Jean-Marie Billet, Father Louis Gergou, and Father Francois Livesouet. And I'm sorry about my pronunciation of that. I'm doing my best with these French names. These five Frenchmen had recently arrived in Louisiana to serve in the burgeoning diocese. Collectively known as the Shreveport Martyrs, these priests were well aware that by caring for the physical and spiritual needs of the sick, they were sacrificing their own lives. All five priests died between September 15th and October 8th, 1873. However, before their passing, they provided aid and comfort for thousands, the majority of which were not even Catholic. Their charitable works and self-sacrifice have been the subject of multiple books and one award-winning film. The bishops of the United States have affirmed the advancement of these remarkable men, who are already recognized as servants of God. To celebrate their shared sacrifice, the advancement of these priests is performed as a group, rather than individually. Several miraculous healings have been noted, especially when Father Livesouet has been prayed to for intercession. The Shreveport Martyrs are being considered for canonization under the Martyrs of Charity category, established by Pope Francis in 2017. I am talking with Father Edward Foley. He's the vice postulator for the canonization cause of Blessed Solanus Casey. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you, Tim. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us on the Flower Path. It's uh, good to always talk about Solanus, so I'm grateful for the opportunities. So just real quick, what does a vice postulator do? And maybe tell a little bit about yourself before we step in and talk about Solanus. Sure. Well, I'm a Capuchin. I've been a Capuchin since 1966, and Solanus Casey was a member of my order and also the province of St. Joseph, uh, to which I belong. So I'm uh, trained as a as a musician and a theologian. I taught theology at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago for about 37 years, and I have been involved with the Solanus cause because I worked with our liturgical commission for so many years. Since about 1990, I actually chaired the, the committee that built what we now call the Slaus Casey Center in uh, Detroit. So, helped coordinate beatification liturgy for Solanus when we had 70,000 of his closest friends 
come to uh, Ford Field, the home of the Detroit Lions, which we turned into the first Father Solanus Casey Parish for a day. And then after that, I was uh, asked to be the vice postulator, the previous vice postulator who had moved through the first miracle was reassigned out west and was ready to move on. So the vice postulator is in some ways the local manager for this particular cause. Capuchins, there are about 900,000 of us uh, in the world and we have in Rome, in our general Korea, we have a Capuchin who is the postulator general for all cases for possible venerable or servant of God or blessed or canonization, both for the Capuchin community and for a number of sisters communities who are connected with us. So in each situation, when there's a particular local case, there is a vice postulator who's named. So I'm the local manager. I'm the one who does the day-to-day work on moving the cause forward. And I work under the direction and in collaboration with the postulator general in Rome. It's a fascinating process. And as Blessed Solanus Casey, he's beatified, so he's one step from saint. So we're waiting on one more miracle. Right. Ordinarily, the move from venerable to blessed is because Rome approves a miracle. But that's not always true, because, for example, a Blessed Stanley from Oklahoma, who was beatified a month before Solanus, had been martyred. Ah. And so there was no approval of a miracle there. It was that the Pope approved his martyrdom as an act of heroic blessedness. So ordinarily, one needs a miracle for the beatification, and then a second miracle that must occur after the first one is approved to move on to canonization. But the Pope is the lawmaker, and so he can, and in some situations has dispensed with the second miracle, but we're not counting on that. We're moving forward with the process. So let's get into a little bit about Father Solanus himself. When and where was he born? So Solanus was born in Wisconsin, Prescott, Wisconsin, in 1870. He was from a family of Irish descent. They were farmers who had come, both his parents were from Ireland, and he was one of 16 kids who worked on this family farm, and they moved around a few different places up in Wisconsin, but they were largely centered in Wisconsin, and he moved away. He got almost an eighth grade education, but there were so many kids on the farm, and it was such a big family that like other kids in the family, when they got to a certain age, he moved away into some of the cities to do jobs that could send some cash back to the family. So he worked as a logger, he worked as a prison guard in Stillwater Prison, he worked on trolleys, so lived a bit of a secular life, was actually pursuing somebody to be married, but their girl's family said no had that kind of experience before he had a somewhat traumatic event happen where he experienced some violence while he was a a trolley conductor 
and uh, that violence apparently there's some dispute about exactly what happened but apparently some woman was assaulted and stabbed and he saw this firsthand and it made him reimagine his commitment he came from a very religious family so the family his spirituality and his religiosity did not come to him when he was 19 years old this was something that was embedded into him by mm. this very committed irish family so he seemed to straddle these two different worlds these two different centuries he's born at the end of the 1800s and then he has this rural farming life and then this sort of city life as you said and do you think these sort of different experiences made Father Solanus particularly suited to become a Capuchin? Well, I'm not sure about the centuries makes that much difference. I think that what was very important was, I want to start with his family of origin. And his family of origin, uh, very devout. He had two brothers who eventually became priests as well. He had a family spirituality. I mean, his family really defined sometimes... If you look at the the rites for the initiation of infants, that ritual talks about the family as the domestic church. His family was a domestic church. And when all the kids couldn't go off to Mass, for example, on a Sunday, the rest of them would stay home and do devotions. So I think it was his family commitment and his being brought up in both a quite loving environment. He stayed very close to his family uh, for throughout his his campus of life. When we got to the beatification, for example, there were over 300 members of the Casey clan. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, yeah. So I think the most important thing that was preparing him for this vocational turn to first to priesthood, because he went to study for the diocese, the archdiocese of Milwaukee. So that was where he started. It was not the Capuchins. Because he didn't have a great education, he only got through about eighth grade before he went off to work. By the time he had this somewhat traumatic event and he decides to go to seminary, now he's like about 19 years old. And he had had not finished high school. So he's a 19, 20-year-old going to school with 13, 14-year-old kids in Milwaukee, finishing high school. And he starts out doing well, but the longer his studies went on there, partly because Archdiocese of Milwaukee had very strong, it still does, Germanic roots. So the faculty was sort of they had a very strong Germanic influence, and the German language was operative there, as was Latin. And as an Irish kid who didn't have any German in his background and had a gap in his education, he simply, there are various stories that are told from various perspectives, but basically he, he flunked out. And they said to him, you're a lovely guy, you have some kind of vocation, but we don't think that it's as a diocesan priest. And they said, why didn't you go to a religious order? Implying that, you know, go be a Capuchin because they're not very bright. So so he went to the Capuchins, but we were also a Germanic-speaking foundation. We were from the German-speaking section of Switzerland. And when he first met the Capuchins, because we had a big parish, which had a large parish downtown, or near downtown Milwaukee for years, St. Francis. And he didn't like the beards, and he didn't like the sandals, and he wasn't impressed with the Capuchins. So this was not his first choice. 
But he went home, and with his mother and with his sister, he made an obedient, had a very deep devotion to the Blessed Virgin throughout his life, and they made an novena before the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, and in the midst of that novena, we don't know exactly what happened, what does it mean to have a voice, like voices inside you say, you know, clean up your room, or don't do something dumb. Uh, there was a voice that sort of came to him that said, go to Detroit, because that was our center. And he decided to take a chance, and traveled to Detroit and arrived there on Christmas Eve. And that was the beginning of his journey with the Caps. Hmm. He ended up eventually becoming a priest, but there was some sort of restrictions placed on what he couldn't do. Why was this? Right. Well, it was the same challenge that he had when he joined the Capuchins in 1996, or he he came to the Capuchins in uh, 1896 and then was ingested in 97. And again, he did his studies, and he was a lovely guy, and he was very pious, and he was obviously a wonderful brother, but he didn't do real well academically. A lot of the instruction was in Latin, a lot of the texts were in Latin, some of the instruction was in German. There was a struggle within the community because he made final vows, but making final vows means that you're a brother, that you're a member of the brotherhood of fraternity, but it doesn't ensure that you will necessarily be ordained. I mean, he was a very obedient, in the best sense of the word, he did things with great joy. Uh, one of the most amazing traits, I think, throughout his life, he continuously said, Deo gratias, thanks be to God. And so before the community, his superiors made a decision about whether or not he could be ordained, he actually, and we have this text that he wrote out in his own hand saying, Whatever you want me to do, I put my future in your hands. I am happy to be any kind of capuchin you decide. So his superiors decided to ordain him, and so he was ordained a priest in 1904. But in Roman Catholic law, there's a difference between having capacity and permission, and that's called, the technical name for that permission is called faculties. And so Solanus was ordained a priest, which means he could celebrate private mass, you know. But that was about it. He had no faculties to do public sacraments. So he never baptized. He never heard confessions. He never publicly witnessed. He never witnessed any weddings. He didn't do funerals. He eventually got permission to preach publicly. So he is was called a simplex priest. And so his entire priestly ministry from 1904 until his death in 1957, he was a simplex priest. And I think this is part of the amazing ordinary path to holiness is that, and I think why he's a great image for priestly ministry, is that his his ministry, his contribution to the church and to the holiness of others was lots of the sacraments. He went to New York that was his first assignment, and he was in charge of the sacristy, and he trained altar servers, and he eventually became the porter, which was a position usually done by lay friars, and he would answer the door. And apparently he did some prison ministry when he was in New York, which was his first experience with people of color, 
which really opened his eyes. I mean, he was incredibly hospitable to, I just finished the index of, of most of his writings. And when you look at the people that he encountered across every religion and atheists and communists and uh, Jewish brothers and sisters, and I mean, it's just people of color and people from different countries. He was a door opener and that's what he did. He opened the door not just to the monastery, but he opened the door to healing, to God, and to commitment to so many people that eventually became the reason why people came to the door. This job of doorkeeper, I'm just curious, does this still exist today in monasteries? Well, in some monasteries, there still are doorkeepers. I was recently overseas and stayed at a, at a monastery where they, they have somebody who's at the door all the time. Now, some of our our monasteries have, like, for example, our large monastery in Detroit is connected to the Solanus Casey Center. So people ordinarily don't go to the monastery anymore for confessions or for counsel or for food. They go to the Casey Center, where there are friars there who hear confessions who are available and lay people for counseling. And then with Solanus's uh, help, he did it with another very important uh, Capuchin friar, Father Bernard Burke. The Capuchin soup kitchen in Detroit was developed, which still serves like 600,000 meals a year or some crazy thing. Wow. Yeah. But he, it was a very standard job, ordinarily done by lay friars. And remember, he was ordained in in 1904 and the Roman Catholic Church is quite hierarchical and so his immediate superior in some places was he was the assistant porter in some places so his immediate superior in some places was a lay friar which is a complete inversion of the hierarchical system and he just didn't blink an eye and he he just tackled everything with joy and it's it's a very unpretentious, generous, grateful form of piety. Isn't this position brought him in contact with many people, and he became Lots. very, very popular. People would come to see him specifically. Exactly. I mean, he eventually is no longer answering the door. He eventually now is sitting behind a desk in an office where he and eventually he also gets a secretary so that somebody else is answering the door and they're lined up you know waiting to see him so he becomes a kind of certainly this wise spiritual mentor and also very early on he becomes a touch point for a lot of healing solanus never says that he has anything personally to do with the healing he has it all he he was in charge of what was called then the Seraphic Mass Association. It's now the Solanus Mission Association, because Solanus was very committed to the missions. But people would come in and they would ask for favors and healing and that kind of thing, and he would enroll them in the Seraphic Mass Association where masses were said for the missions. And then people would report healings. And it happens often early on in his ministry that his superiors said you have to start writing this stuff down 
So he begins these writing these notebooks, and actually, there when he died, there are there are eleven of them, and yeah, there are over six thousand entries. It's one of the things that I've been indexing the last two or three years. If you go online to salamiscasey.org, you can look up just the index, and it'll give you an idea of not only the broad swath of people from different faith perspectives and religions that he met, but I mean, the number, if there was a disease, he met it. But it was also, he was doing a lot of this during the Depression. People were losing their homes. People were going into bankruptcy. People didn't have enough food. There was a lot of family violence. During this period, innumerable people went missing. There's how many people in the 30s and 40s, uh, especially in the 30s, they didn't have a job, their family didn't have money, and the 17-year-old would just disappear. And there were a lot of tragedies. There were people who were hurt in accidents that they... They didn't have OSHA back then. There wasn't the safety requirements, and people would go blind because they got steel in their eyes or the drownings or the number of automobile accidents. Or I mean, he faced an incredible amount of trauma and loss in people's lives. And what inspires me is that he maintained his joy, his thanks be to God, there's nothing in his writings that gives you the impression that he's ever depressed. Hmm. So he's quite an amazing, he is a door opener, and he never saw himself as anything else than opening the door to people would come in, he couldn't hear their confessions, they'd been away from the church for 40 years, he'd send them to a Capuchin priest. He was, he was like referral center <laughs> that joy is something you hear described about many people who are saints or on the road to sainthood i think that's true it's when you look at the history of sanctity in the roman catholic church there were also a lot of curmudgeons <laughs> and uh you know uh, when you read St. Paul, he was not always the happiest person in the world, but St. Jerome was not always, these were people were not always easy to live with. Saints are not always easy to live with. Solanus was very self-reflective. I mean, early on, he talks about he has to work at being a brother. You know, he's, he knows he has issues of pride, and but he really was embedded in a fraternity. And I think one of the marks sometimes of blessed or venerable or saints that emerge in religious communities is that they've, he had his great spirituality from his family, but he also got it from the Capuchins. Mm -hmm. And when he joined a religious community, it's sort of like a little bit like living with sandpaper and your rough edges, hopefully get worn off. I mean, I've been a Capuchin for almost 56 years, and there's still a lot of rough edges. <laughs> so, so I still need the sandpaper of the community. The community enabled him to, I think, be increasingly effective in his journey into holiness. And of course, Francis 
was a person of a saint of great joy. Mm-hmm. Solanus had a Franciscan spirit, deeply. When you became a friar, you must have met people who knew him personally. I did, and there there are still people alive who knew him personally. Uh, We still have some friars who are in their mid-80s who lived with him. We have a couple of friars in Detroit right now, for example, that when they joined the community in 1956 or so, their novitiate, half their novitiate was in Detroit. So they they were novices. They had some exposure to him. When I joined the community, I went to our minor seminary in 62 and I joined the community in 66. There were a number of people who still knew him, but the Solanus charism wasn't that big in the community when I joined. It was not, and I think this is another wonderful testimony to him, is that the push to pursue the cause of his sanctity was not coming from the Capuchin superiors. It came from the lay people. Oh, wow. Oh, that's fantastic. It was the lay people who very early on, for example, after his death, I mean, 20,000 people showed up to pay respects when he died. Right? They couldn't do the wake in the the chapel in Detroit, because it was way too small, they actually had to move into a funeral parlor, which was very unusual. That's not what they did with archives. And there were over 20,000 people who came through the, the funeral home to pay their respects, and then a huge number descended upon the monastery. Uh, and he dies in 57, and already in 1959, a group of uh, friends of Salamis get together to discuss organizing a guild in his memory. And in July of that year, the Capuchin superiors approve holding this, developing this Solanus cause. Eventually, 70,000 people would join the Solanus Guild. Wow. And it's that push of from the lay people. They continued. He was buried in the backyard of the monastery. And the backyard was open, and people came to visit the grave, and to visit the grave, and to visit the grave. I know in in 1990, when we got the signal from our Capuchin superiors to start exploring the building of Solanus Casey Center in Detroit, at that point, there was evidence that there were over 60,000 visits a year to his grave. Oh, wow. So it's, I mean, even today, people leave notes on his tomb. And when I became vice postulator, after a couple of months, I said, you know, we should start. I said, how many are there? And they said, oh, there are 50, there are 100, there are... So I took the box and went back to my office and counted the them. There were 450 over a 36-hour period. <laughs> and from and we only started counting these in like in 2000 and early 2020. There are over 750,000 notes that have been left at his still. My goodness. Wow. Yeah. Some of these come in digitally, come in. So it was the groundswell from the folk because he was so personally relatable. 
he wasn't somebody who had mystical experiences, who had stigmatas. He wasn't an extraordinary theologian or intellect or brilliant preacher or he was so ordinary that, you know, anybody could and did relate to him. And so it was the people who pushed it. And finally, in and it was about 1959 or so that the guild started had was officially moving along and then in 1966 so nine years after he died but seven years after the founding of this guild they finally appoint the first vice postulator and they start moving the cause along so when was he awarded the servant of god title so servant of god the the congregation of the saints uh, declared that his cause was legitimate in 1982. So it allowed the Archdiocese of Detroit to open the cause. And then in June of 82, of John Paul II ratified that permission. And with that, he became servant of God. And in 83, the Archdiocese of Detroit began investigating the life and virtue of Solanus. And as part of that, he was the body was exhumed. His body was exhumed twice, first in 87, and it was reinterred inside the church. It was before we had built the Solanus Casey Center. And then they have to go through this long process. They had to go through all of his writings. They there's a they had to study all of his writings. They had published the writings. They had to present a, a positio on his life, on his virtues, all of these uh, testimonies, hundreds of testimonies supporting letters from 50 or 60 bishops around the country, because you need the backing of the United States Catholic Conference. Mm -hmm. So in those were presented, the Positio was officially presented in 92. And then in 95, Pope John Paul II, with this promulgation of a decree of virtue, he no longer was called servant of God, but he was called venerable. And that happened in 95. As you're gathering all this information and all of his writings, I think, don't you have to gather like everything he's ever written that you can get your hands on for this process? Absolutely. Yeah. Do those notebooks become part of this process? The notebooks with the cures and such? Absolutely. With everything. And so one of the things that one of the vice postulators did, which was a Herculean piece of work, is that they had to transcribe everything Every letter, every Christmas card, every postcard, everything that he signed. He also had a stamp. So one of the challenges is what did he sign and what was stamped? He had a variety of different secretaries. So what did the secretary write in his name? So all of that was collected and published. It runs about 1,400 pages. And then after that was finished, they they found even more. So there's an appendix to that. I've done an index on the first four volumes, which is like 85, 95, 90% of the writings. Um, I still have to tackle the rest of it. But that's all, how did he treat people? Did I mean, there were some questions, for example, in the age that he was writing, he would refer to colored people who came to visit him and that he went to visit was he racially insensitive was i mean the, all of that has to be was his theology orthodox 
was his reliance on the Blessed Virgin, or was it an appropriate Christology? Was he truly virtuous? Was he obedient? And did he keep the vows? And I mean, of course, when you do that and you look at when he was in Detroit, and that's where probably his his fame developed the most, and he was there for almost 20 years. And then all of a sudden, in 1945, he gets transferred first to New York and then to Huntington, Indiana. And he just, he leaves his trunk, he leaves his stuff, he's gone the next day. Hmm. You know? And it wasn't easy. He writes to one of his former secretaries that, that this is, just leave it there and give this away. And he settles in for semi-retirement, supposedly, and in Huntington, but people are still bussing down there and visiting him. And, and eventually, as his health deteriorates, they they bring him home. They bring him back to Detroit where he dies. So before a uh, candidate for sainthood can be beatified, there needs okay. to be a church-approved miracle. Usually, unless there's martyrdom. Right. right. Or unless the Pope decides for some reason to simply declare blessed, which mm-hmm. is the Pope's authority. doesn't happen too often, but it sometimes does. Was there a miracle attributed to Father Solanus' intercession? Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, he's the first U.S.-born male to ever have a miracle conferred by Rome. Oh, wow. Um, so there were other U.S. saints who had uh, miracles, uh, women, and people who were born outside the U.S., but he was the first U.S.-born male. And it was a case where there was a, a woman from Panama, the, the Capuchins had missions in Panama, and there was a friend of the friars, uh, Paula, and Paula had a, uh, a genetic skin disease that the, the skin hardened and cracked all over her body, including her face, her skull. She had to, she was a teacher. She had to give up teaching because this was so painful. She lived in Panama and she couldn't go out in the sun. And she was a this great ministerial spirit with the friars. And so she they invited her to come up to visit the friars. She didn't know virtually anything about Salamis. And she visited the friars in Milwaukee, where there's a very large Spanish-speaking population. And she went over to Detroit. And she learned a little bit about Salamis, and she saw that people were putting all these notes on his tomb. So she's writing notes for her family, and she's writing notes for her friends who need this intercession or that intercession. And then, again, who knows what does it mean to hear a voice, to have this urging? And the voice sort of said, how about you? So she prays for herself. She may have put in a note, I'm not completely clear about that, but she did pray for her own healing, because this was quite a burden. And she went to lunch. She was staying at the visitor's quarters in the friary, and she went to lunch, and she was feeling this heat on her legs, and she wore these long stockings, even in you know the summer, because of the disfiguration. And she went back to her room, and she pulls on the stockings, and she's got clumps of of dead skin coming off in her hands. I mean, this was probably as instantaneous as something can be. So they started the process in 2012, and it's a long process. 
And the process belongs to the diocese in which the purported miracle, we don't call them miracles, only Rome can do that. So it happens, and the investigation takes place in the diocese in which the purported miracle occurs. So that purported miracle occurred in the Archdiocese of Detroit. So the Archdiocese, at the instigation of the postulator general, writes to the archbishop and says, we believe that there should be an investigation opened on this potential miracle. So they have a medical team, they look at the virtues, and the other thing is that you have to establish that it was his intercession. Because was she playing to the Blessed Virgin also, or was she also praying to St. Teresa, or was she praying to St. Jude? Or So part of it is establishing that this occurred through his intercession. And that process started in, the event occurred in September of 2012. It went through the almost two-year process investigation in Detroit. After it was opened, it sent to the cause of the saints, the Congregation for the Cause of the Saints in Rome. And then in May of 2017, he approved the miraculous healing of Paula. So with that, he announced that uh, Salamis would be beatified, that it would happen in November, and that his feast was set. He died on July or 31st, but the July 31st is the feast of St. Ignatius of Loyola. So they moved his feast, so the feast of Blessed Salamis is July 30th. It's coming up. Yeah, it is. So that sounds like a very meticulous process, and, and I understand the Vatican has to be that way. They want to make sure things are, you know, this was a miracle. They want to take out every other option with this right. uh, normal medical process or, or et cetera. Are there, and I imagine there are, but are other miracles that either weren't church approved, uh, miracles attributed to Salatus that either weren't church approved or you hear about them and you just like, well, there's no way we'll ever prove that, things like that. Well, other people can call things miracles, mm -hmm. right? So we do know that there were a lot of cases of purported miracles and some of them were pursued. And one of the things that's happened, because there were multiple cases that were sent to Rome, actually. And one of the things that's happened is that my boss, the postulator general, is a very, very careful and thoughtful guy. So technically, the vice postulator could go to a local diocese and say, we have a purported miracle here and we want you to open that investigation. And uh, my boss, uh, who's so good, I will not do that unless I send him. If we get, and we get a lot of what we call favor reports. We have actually a form on the website where people can report favors. And one of the things that we have to do is to pursue them. We have to be able to establish that there is no medical explanation. Some of the favor reports we get occurred before the first miracle was approved in 2017. So we simply can't pursue them. Uh, we say that this is a wonderful story, and without detracting in any way from the miracle your family may have experienced, we cannot pursue this for this canonical reason. Mm -hmm. Other favor reports we get, you see this often with people who experience cancer, 
is that they may go through radiation, they may go through chemo, they may go through surgery, and now they're in remission. And one could argue, and we have got about 12 pro bono physicians who work for us across a wide variety of everything from dermatologists who consulted on the Paula issue to neurologists, psychiatrists, oncologists. And so we send the favor report. If, if there's been a lot of medical intervention, I write back to the folk and say, this is a great story. It's very important. We're actually publishing some of these stories with people's permission on the website. So if you go to the cause, there are stories of favor reports of children and couples and all this kind of thing. But if it is not clear to a non-professional like me whether or not this is medically provable, I send it to one of these pro bono physicians and they look at the favor report and they either say, the favor report's two or three pages, and sometimes people send supplemental information. And they look at it and they say, no, this is this happens because with an infant that age, it's amazing how resilient are, and I've seen this in my own practice. All of our folk are board certified. Or they'll say, well, I'm not. this is not clear to me. You've got to get full medical records. So we go through the process then of going back to the folk and saying, our physicians would like to move forward with this. Can you get the medical records, which is sometimes daunting. It takes a while, uh, especially during COVID. It was tough. Oh, yeah. Hospitals were overwhelmed. And what we've recently done in the last two years or so is that we now have a medical release form that we send to the individual or the guardian parents, if it's a minor, and so will you release the medical records to us? So we're very cautious about confidentiality. We follow HIPAA laws. We do not publicly speak about any case. We give no names. We don't comment on any cases under investigation. We try to keep the family up to date on what's happening. Sometimes families will decide to publicize a story that they had a miraculous healing, which is their right. Once we get the responses back from, if they say, like with Paula, they said she still has the disease, but there is no external evidence of it, and there is no medical explanation why that is true. She has no symptoms, but she still has the disease. So they said, we can't explain this. So you take everything up, you take all of the records, the medical records, the testimonies, the investigation that's done by a tribunal that's been named by the archdiocese, usually a tribunal of three folk. They seal everything up, and it's delivered, hand-delivered ordinarily, to the Congregation for Saints. And then they, when they get to it, of course, there are many of these that come to them. When they get to it, they assemble a medical team. Eventually, it's a medical team of seven, they need five out of seven of the physicians to agree that there's no medical explanation. Theologians have to look at it. Was this through his intercession? What does this? Can we establish that this was done through a virtuous act? And it goes to the heads of that congregation, which are usually a group of cardinals. And if it moves through all those stages and it gets thumbs up 
across the board. Then it goes to the Pope, and he decides. No short process, no easy process in no. normal terms. I mean, obviously, like you said, there are some exceptions. Uh, right. But, uh, wow. Amazing. So one of the interesting things in reading about and talking about the saints on this podcast is they were people. These were people. These weren't um, angels that came from heaven. These were mortal people. They have what the Vatican has termed as heroic virtue, which is something to to hold up and and hopefully we can all get there someday. But they were people. Do you have any funny stories or just for Father Solanus rather just being a, a normal person, just maybe a foibles or, or anything like that from the folks that lived with him? He was just an ordinary, unpretentious, which I think why he's such a wonderful model for sanctity for the 21st century. He would go to a local pub with friends and have a beer. Mm-hmm. He was very, very close to his family. I mean, there are some stories, some of these so-called miraculous stories that, that he got one of them. I don't have all of the specifics of this right. It's in one of his biographies that one of the friars had to go to a dentist or something, and he had gotten two ice cream cones for the kid or something, and the the kid was having some kind of problem, and he put the two ice cream cones in his desk, and they settled this thing, and a couple of hours later, he comes back and slides, pulls out these two ice cream cones, and they're not melted, you know. (laughs) You know, he was so unpretentious, sometimes he would have to tell people that he could not help them, that there was no, I mean, every story does not end up being a happy story. Sure. He deals with the good, the bad, and the ugly in a very, very even way. But then there are these other stories that, I mean, some of them we worked with Michael O'Neill, the Miracle Hunter, who has a series on EWTN, and we did did an episode on Solanus, and we used some of these stories about some kid was really drunk and he comes to the door and he's really mad at Solanus and he's got, he wants to take him out and Solanus brings him in and eventually gets the alcohol out of his hand and the kid, you know, sort of melts. And there's another story we've got in there where the family comes and they've got like a four or five year old who, who's never been able to walk. It's amazing how many of those are in his notebooks that kids... There's polio, there's all sorts of stuff coming on. There's no vaccinations in this age about these things and kids who can't walk and haven't been able to talk. And the family brings this four-year-old or five-year-old who's sitting on the mother's lap. And Solanus, who's so unpretentious, says to the kid, you know, come here. You know, and the mother says, father, you can't walk. And Solanus just says, come here. Mm-hmm. And the kid gets up and walks over to him. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. I really like that. And Solanus doesn't do a victory dance or, or you know, call the, the press to say that, look, we did this one more time. Mm-hmm. It's just he believed that God operated in ordinary lives and in ordinary events with ordinary people of any religion, of any race, I once met a guy, an Uber driver in Chicago, I mean, in Detroit, taking me to the monastery, African American. And he said he remembered when he was a kid that his family was getting racial harassment from neighbors. Salons came over in the middle of the day and visited, and that was the end of that. Oh, wow. 
That's awesome. And I, I believe you mentioned he helped establish the soup kitchen there in Detroit. He did. Which still exists today. It does. There were people coming to the monastery. The people have always come to the monasteries for food, for clothing, for all sorts of help. That's, that's happened in some ways throughout the history of many religious orders. But it it escalated, especially after the after the crash of twenty nine. And we were already having there would all already be having thirty or forty, fifty people coming to the back door for help, for food. But after the crash of twenty nine especially, those numbers began to escalate oh, uh, into, into, the, into the hundreds and then literally thousands. So it was another friar, Father Bernard, who was the kind of manager of all this. He was the organizer. He was the one that they took one of the halls, one of the third order halls where the secular Franciscans met and they started. They, and and with Solanus's connections, one of the things that Solanus really helped with is inviting the donations bakeries were sending day-old bread you know they were getting lay folk who had encountered solanas to come in and help do the cooking even today in the in the soup kitchen part of the brilliance of its design is that while there is a head chef it's volunteer groups who come in day after day after day who to cook the main meal mm-hmm. so it's out of this that then the catfish and soup kitchen and then and there's now one in Milwaukee, and then what is then called now called Capuchin Community Services because there are social workers, there are places where you can get appliances and food. There are two centers now in Detroit. One of them was was built during the um, Clinton era, where they changed the the rules about food stamps, and they started seeing more and more children uh, coming to the soup kitchen so now one of the centers has got a children's dining room they have showers it's the corporal works of mercy and if you go to the tomb of solanus today across one wall behind him are the spiritual works of mercy and on the other wall are the corporal works of mercy and solanus held both of those together in his life it wasn't just pray and be holy it's do something yes oh for the missions for the poor for your family. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to put a link to the soup kitchen. So if listeners want to donate, they can do so. I'll put that. And also give them a link to the SolanusCasey.org site because it's got all of his bibliographic information and wonderful stories and his timeline and these favor stories. And if people have favors to report, our favor report is on there. And we'd love to hear if people have favors that come to the intercession of Solanus. And uh, I guess we can just end by by asking Father Solanus to pray for us. Father Solanus, blessed Solanus, pray for us. Thank you so much, Father Edward Foley, for taking the time to do this. You're very welcome, Jim. Again, solanuscasey.org is the website Father Ed mentioned. 
Lots of information about Blessed Solanus there, and a wonderful gift shop. I purchased a small statue of Blessed Solanus for myself, actually. I love saint statues, and often rescue them from auctions, yard sales, and junk shops. The Soup Kitchen website, where you can donate if you are able, is cskdetroit.org. I'll put links to both of those in the show notes under this episode at thefloweredpath.com. A quick note about the Etsy shop my wife and I run. The shop name is Lost Grave. You can find it at etsy.com slash shop slash lost grave. When you go there, you'll see a lot of merch for my other podcasts, Strange Familiars, as well as books I've written on local legends, Bigfoot, and the like. My artwork is also there, both prints and originals. But we do have a Flowered Path section in the shop. And there you can find the Flowered Path t-shirts. We only have small and medium at this time, but we should be getting restocks before too long. And we'll have all sizes, small through triple XL. At this time, there is one mug with the Flowered Path logo left. There's also a vinyl sticker set with the podcast logo and my illustration of Our Lady of Fatima on vinyl stickers. I should be getting restocks of the Our Lady of Fatima prints very soon as well. I'll also be adding books related to the topics I cover on The Flowered Path when I find them. Right now, there is one copy of The True Story of Fatima there, and as soon as I get more rosary parts, I'll be adding more paracord rosaries. I had a couple extra after I made the ones for the Yorketeer members, and they went quickly. Again, our shop is at etsy.com slash shop slash lost grave, or just enter lost grave in the search bar, and Etsy will ask you if you meant to look for our shop. The sources for this show, including the news segment, can be found in the show notes for this episode at thefloweredpath.com. News writers for The Flowered Path are patrons and friends of the show, Sarah and Kevin. Please like and subscribe to The Flowered Path wherever you are listening. If you are inclined to leave a nice review, that will help as well. The Flowered Path is on YouTube, so please subscribe to our channel there. You can find it by going to youtube.com slash at sign thefloweredpath6395. Again, I don't know why they put those numbers after The Flowered Path, but that's YouTube. And no matter where you listen, if you like what you hear, please share the episodes with your friends and on social media. You can find The Flowered Path on Facebook, facebook.com slash thefloweredpath, on Instagram, at thefloweredpath, and on the web at thefloweredpath.com. <laughs>